0: In many cases, the book of Proverbs teaches us through contrasts. The contrasts are between things like two kinds of people. You know, you might be dealing with the righteous or the wicked. You might be dealing with the wise or the fool. Some pair of words is giving you a contrast. The contrasts don't only include kinds of people. The contrasts include actions those people do or not do. You might have one figure who is... Honoring a parent, another one despising a parent, one working diligently, and one being sluggardly. The actions of what are done or not done are part of the way Proverbs teaches by contrast. The contrasts in Proverbs include not just kinds of people or kinds of actions, but also the corresponding effects. The corresponding effects, in other words, if a particular route is chosen, a particular path, Walked upon, where is that going exactly? What's the effect down the road of the accumulation of those decisions? In other words, if I'm contrasting sowing, what's the contrasting reaping of what is sown? The corresponding effects. The value of this teaching method is at least twofold. Teaching by contrast means People don't always have an accurate view of themselves. Teaching, by contrast, is valuable because people don't always have an accurate view of themselves. They may think they're wise, but then they realize in a particular teaching, here's what the wise do. They don't do that. Or they realize, I'm on a particular path heading down this destination, And so secondly, the value of contrast is people don't always think about where their decisions lead. So they don't always have an accurate view of themselves. They think they're wise, but their actions and consequences in life suggest the opposite. And secondly, people don't always think about where their decisions take them. So when Proverbs teaches us about contrasting endpoints, well, we get to ask ourselves, do I want the end that this path is taking me to? Is this destination Desirable. In teaching by contrast, Proverbs does not mince words, does it? Solomon, the son of David, can tell us in very graphic ways, painting and portraying the situations at the end of the chosen path. They can be quite grim, such as the end of our passage tonight in verse 24 that the prudent would be led upward away from Sheol beneath. All right, well, n- nobody's saying, I want to get to Sheol as soon as possible. Uh, you know, I, I want uh, this, this uh, place of judgment, which is what's depicted here. In verse 24, the prudent are led away from that. And so the, the end is there. Uh, but mixed in our passage tonight are kinds of people, the kinds of decisions they make, and the various ends that correspond. But by looking at a unit like this, we're able to see the various ways that Proverbs teaches by contrast. It's a very valuable teaching method. And not everything can be so easily put in binary categories I know in life because there are plenty of gray areas in life and life is complicated. Proverbs has a way of like a knife through butter piercing through the confusion of things and say let's just stand back for a moment and say where are my feet heading? What are the decisions that I'm making as they accumulate? What kind of character are they forming? And do I want to reap what I'm sowing? And in verse 19, we see the way or path of the sluggard and the path of the upright being contrasted. Way and path are just two different words about the same thing. The way or the path is somebody's way of life. Right? It's a metaphor in Proverbs and elsewhere. The path is the, the way of life for the upright. So in verse 19, here's the contrast. The way of the sluggard and the path of the upright. That's being contrasted. And the simile for the sluggard is very graphic. The way of the sluggard, his way of life, is like a hedge of thorns. Nothing desirable about that. It's not something you want to step into. You avoid that. It's not something you'd want to catch your fall. Oh, I'm so glad that when I fell, it was in that hedge of thorns. It's not aesthetically pleasing. Oh, you know what would look really great, right? What if we just what if we planted a hedge of thorns? It's not the kind of thing that in this simile that's meant to be desirable. A hedge of thorns is actually put here to picture something that's in your way. Something you would walk around. Something that you would not want to be caught up in. But the way of the sluggard, the path of the sluggard, the way the sluggard lives is like a hedge of thorns. You could think of it this way. A sluggard is someone who gets in their own way. A sluggard is someone who gets in their own way. Now, there might be a lot of finger pointing, nevertheless. Oh, it's because of these circumstances and these reasons and these people. And, you know, there could be a lot of of blame shifting when, at the bottom of it, there could be an issue of character where there is not a diligent, disciplined pursuit of faithful work, but instead sluggardliness. We have to remind ourselves that the sluggard is the one who does not want to do what is hard. And the sluggard is driven by all the feelings of the moment, and they don't feel like doing anything that's going to be overly demanding of themselves. The way of the sluggard is not looking anything any farther than the present moment. What do I want to do and what do I not want to do? And the questions don't get any more complicated than that. Of course, we realize that in life, we can short-circuit our lives if we don't think long-term and only short-term. The sluggard is dominated by short-term thinking, and short-term thinking is destructive. Because short-term thinking fails to consider the consequences of things, the direction that paths lead, and how consequences will not only affect the sluggard, but the people around the sluggard. The sluggard's life is like a hedge of thorns. The sluggard is in his own way. And perhaps this hedge of thorns pictures the kind of thing that in a path he'd say, well, this is blocking my path. So that his path or way seems to be filled with obstacles. And maybe that's the excuse. That the sluggard's way is like a hedge of thorns to the sluggard. It's like, I can't go that way. I can't do that. I can't pursue that. All I see are thorns. Whereas other people might think and look at a situation and say, well, this opportunity is going to require some hard work. To the sluggard, it only looks like a bushel of thorns and they want nothing to do with it. The sluggard is mentioned elsewhere in Proverbs, like in chapter twenty-two, thirteen. 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. When that's an excuse. It's not as if the common experience is that when people left their dwelling in the ancient world, they had to deal with lions in their streets. But you might say, well, wait a second. If there was an actual lion in the street, he has good reason to stay in his house. And in the sluggard's mind, there's always, always, always a lion in the streets. There's always a reason he can find for not doing what he should do. And we know that there are plenty of good and right and wise obligations and duties that occupy our lives as Christians. And we can always, if we search long and hard enough, and we probably don't have to think long about it, there are always reasons we can find to not do what we should do. And the sluggard here is also mentioned in chapter 26, 13, nearly identical to the verse I read. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. Remember coming across this story in Houston, Texas about uh, a Bengal tiger in 2021, in May of 2021, these, uh, these neighbors on a Houston, Texas street looked outside their windows to see an actual Bengal tiger walking around in their neighborhood. It's absolutely horrifying. And it's walking around and this Bengal tiger is stopping in various yards. And one particular person who lived on the street, Jose Ramos, 50 years old, he says in his account, I was eating Sunday evening, looked out my window and there's a tiger in my front yard. And I had to pinch myself and I said, is this real? And he went outside to assess the situation and he got closer with his camera to take pictures as one does. And then to his uh, confusion, the owner of the Bengal tiger who lived on the street got out of his house in haste, put the animal in his SUV and drove away. But how often does that kind of thing really occur? Who's going to look out their window and say, well, you know, the reason we didn't go and do this or the reason I had this responsibility and didn't follow through, you know how Bengal tigers are and how common they are in this neighborhood. This particular sluggard can find any reason when he looks out his window to not do what he should do. His way, his path is like a hedge of thorns. This means obstacles are always present to him. He only sees what is difficult. And he doesn't want to persevere. He doesn't want to rise to the challenge. He doesn't want to seek the help that he needs. He doesn't want to take a long-term view of where this diligent plodding along the path will take him. He only sees thorns. And therefore, back to sluggardly ways he goes. The contrast with the way of the upright is this. In verse 19, the path of the upright is a level highway. Well, that's totally different from a... Uh, a a thing occupied by by thorns, right? A level highway. Now that sounds nice because you and I have driven on things that didn't feel very level, potholes in the road or dirt paths and curves. And we might think to ourselves, man, I missed the smooth roads that I was on a moment ago or that I'm heading to because right now, right now driving on this is painful. Everybody is just bouncing. And here this upright person is on a well-made or level highway. Now we don't need to overread this. A way of overreading it would be to say, well, wait a second, do the upright, do they just not have any problems? Hey, are they just doing diligent work and nothing ever goes wrong? I think there would be a wrong way to take this level highway image. It's about perspective and follow through and perseverance, which the person here called the upright would have. This person walk, works with diligence. And therefore, they, in their sluggardliness, aren't making their life more difficult. We need to really buy into the Bible's wisdom here. That foolishness is just going to make our lives more difficult. Now I'm not saying that living uprightly before the Lord and seeking first the kingdom of God means everything is rosy. This is no prosperity gospel in Proverbs or anywhere else. But it is to say sluggardliness is not going to improve your life. But working with diligence and faithfulness and discipline, that will help your perspective and perseverance in what you do. And that makes a difference. That makes a difference. The sluggard's life suffers not just physically or, or financially. Think about the spiritual implications. Think about the sluggard who thinks, I know I should read my Bible. I know I should go to church. I know I should do this. I know I should do that. So, in their mind, they know they should, but they won't. Reading their Bible takes discipline, going to church takes effort. And discipline and effort are the very sorts of things that are like an allergy to them, and they want nothing to do with it. The sluggard's life is a life of inflicted toil, turmoil, and suffering that is not only the case physically and financially, but also spiritually. Here, this upright person is not someone upright that just is really well-to-do in the world and they're really diligent and they're an example and an inspiration, but it's not about spiritual stuff. Instead, the upright, we know in the book of Proverbs, they are those who fear the Lord. So when they work diligently and they seek to faithfully apply themselves and they want to bring honor to God in what they do, they are driven by their love for God and a healthy fear of the Lord. They want to live out of reverence for God and for the praise of God. In other words, this person's life involves fruitfulness at every level as well. They want to flourish spiritually. They want to succeed in what they're applying their hand to. And they know that God has called them not to sluggardliness, but to diligence. The contrast here in verse 20 seems to have a theme that could easily connect with this. Because we know that when teaching and raising children, one of the things that we would want to impart is a healthy ethic of work. And that someone has a view toward diligence and discipline that's going to be a blessing to their lives. So in verse 20, a wise son makes a glad father. This is not wisdom unanchored and untethered from very specific realms that Proverbs would address. Instead, I think wisdom for a young person, a wise son or a foolish one in the contrast, is characterized by not doing the things Proverbs puts forward as what a virtuous life would include. A wise son. That would include a son that learns to be diligent that learns the value of hard and faithful work, of seeing a challenge and not turning from it. A wise son makes a glad father, and a foolish son despises his mother. Parents know what Charles Bridges, an old interpreter of this uh, book of Proverbs, says. Parents know this is true. Do not the brightest joys and the bitterest sorrows in this world of tears flow from parents' hearts? Think about that question. Do not the brightest joys and the bitterest sorrows in this world of tears flow from parents' hearts? Why might he put it that way as a parent? Because the children which we love and seek to entangle our lives with at every level during the years of rearing children, these children affect their parents. What an important observation this is for the children in the room. To realize that the way you conduct yourselves affects your parents in other words parents are not stoic they're not made of stone they're not, trying to be unri- they're not trying to be unmoved by what's going on rather they can be moved to great sorrow as well as great gladness by what their children do a wise son makes a glad father consider the context of the book for this contrast who would a wise son be this is not just someone in the world that is considered someone quite clever or that's developed street smarts or intelligence about this matter or that one. In the book of Proverbs, a wise son is known as a son that fears the Lord. And the father that's made glad, he's made glad because his fa- the father wants his son to fear the Lord. We can imagine fathers that don't value what they should, and that if a wise- if a son became wise in the Lord... There might be a father that mocks that and rejects that and thinks that is absolutely absurd. The father that's made glad here is a father who knows what he should value. And therefore, the wise son makes a glad father because the wise son fears the Lord and the father fears the Lord as well. And therefore, the father is gladdened by the right thing. He wants to be made glad by what ought to make him glad. Now, I wonder by the uh, for parents, you know, the implication of this, just thinking about how our children affect us and whether we are made glad by what we should be made glad about and whether we are sorrowful by what ought to rightly bring us sorrow. It is not wrong on the face of it for children to affect the lives of their parents. And for the decisions of parents to affect the joy and well-being of their children. How could it be otherwise when you are relationally and emotionally entangled in life? And I don't mean entangled in a negative way. It's just the reality of life together. It's a relationship of love in which our emotions are naturally entangled together. This is why Bridges observes in his comment there and in that question that bright joys and bitter sorrows come out of parents' hearts because parents know what it is like to see sorrowful decisions as well as gladdening decisions. And a wise son makes a glad father. The appeal in the observation would be this for the children in the room tonight. What is it that you want to help produce and cultivate in your parents? Do you want to produce sorrow in them? Or would you like to see them glad at what ought to make them glad? Overjoyed and cheerful by what is good and right? Then pursue wisdom. A wise son makes a glad father. The son fears what he should... The father is made glad by what should make him glad. And the contrast is with a foolish son. I know it says foolish man in the ESV, but the contrast is clearly a parental one. Because the foolish man despises his mother. This is not to say his mother was perfect or imperfect. It's to say his posture toward his parent was a violation of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. That is the opposite of this. In verse 20, a foolish man despising his mother, it's not to say that he had a perfect or imperfect parent. It's to say this person's posture, heart disposition toward the parent was out of keeping from the word of God. And therefore, this foolish person has contempt for his mother. This foolish person, his foolishness is manifested in the way he treats the most immediate authorities in his household. If the wise son makes his father glad, how might that be? Is it because the father's head in the clouds and he doesn't really know what his son is doing? No, the son is called a wise son. It doesn't just say any old son makes a glad father. A wise son. So the adjective there is identifying this son as one who's growing to fear and know the Lord. And that makes a a father glad because the father sees the path of the son's feet. But the foolish person, his feet are on a path of folly. And part of that is demonstrated in the way he treats his mother. In J.C. Ryle's excellent book, Thoughts for Young Men, one of the things he observes about the temptations of the young is that they are tempted to think that they know more than their parents do. And they think, oh, you know, my mom, there she goes on and on again. Or dad, there he goes again about this or that. And and they have a, a dismissive posture and a contempt for that. And that doesn't show wisdom in the heart of the young person. It shows the presence of foolishness indeed. The foolish person despises his mother. And in the parallel here, father and mother would both be considered parents of godliness. In other words, like Proverbs 1, you should have your life as a child adorned by your father and mother's teaching like a a crown for your head and garland for your neck. Proverbs 1 talks about the spiritual investment of a father and mother. And here, the fool despises his godly mother. The wise son makes a glad father. One way we could mistake Uh, in our be mistaken in our interpretations is if we look at glad father and think well the mother wouldn't be affected by a wise son well no of course she would we could rightly say that a wise son makes a glad mother we could obviously say a foolish man despises his father these are not uh, uninterchangeable you see it's just the purpose of the stylistic parallelism and contrast that it reads the way that it does The contrast continues, and I think it still has to do with uh, pursuing wisdom, and especially for the young. Look in verse 21. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. We opened our passage tonight in verse 19 about the way of the sluggard and the path of the upright, and these are ways on which you walk. And walking, or Path language is brought into verse 21, isn't it? A man of understanding walks straight ahead. And our previous verse talked about a foolish man, and folly is brought together in verse 21 in the opening line. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. How is it that someone who lacks sense shows that? They love foolishness. They're drawn to it. They love folly. They want to do it. They want others to do it with them. They lack sense and understanding and therefore are contrasted rightly with the man of understanding who walks straight ahead. In verse 21, lacks sense means literally to lack heart. Because the metaphor of the heart in the Old Testament is the place of your reasoning and deliberation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. right? So we're talking about the place in which love emanates and overflows. Where we are reasoning and deciding. Where our affections are present. And this person lacks a right heart. And the reason it's evident is because folly is a joy to him. This is the problem. The fool enjoys what he shouldn't. And what he enjoys... Is folly. Folly is the opposite of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. It involves rebellion against God. It involves a path toward destruction. And the fool looks at that path and says, I think I'm going to continue walking down that road. And others are pleading and they come alongside. Why are you doing this? Don't you see? Don't you realize where? But the fool, he's going where his heart seems to be finding joy. And he is drawn to folly. The lies of sin remain what they are. The boat broken and bankrupt promises of sin remain the case. But nevertheless, the fool is drawn with his foolishness and lacking of sense and heart toward foolishness, folly. One writer puts it this way. Only a fool finds joy in the foolishness of putting self and pleasure first, not considering the consequences of actions, or caring about the effects on self or others. If folly is a joy to the fool, the danger is not only the effect on the fool himself, but on others around him who want to see the fool abandon foolishness, pursue a path of wisdom and folly, but the fool doesn't find joy in making his father or mother glad. It's folly that brings him joy. A man of understanding, the word understanding in the contrast here is about wisdom. We could simply say a man of wisdom or a man of spiritual insight, a man of understanding. That person's heart has been formed by the word of God and by the teaching of those who've gone before him. And therefore he sees most truly where his feet should go and where that path leads. A man of understanding walks straight ahead. The picture here is of a course... With a straight path with pitfalls on both sides. So that if he were to go off to the right or turn to the left, there would be disaster. So his feet avoid moral disaster by avoiding folly. He keeps straight ahead. It's the same idea that Moses and Joshua talked about. In the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Joshua, we talk about you know the, the idea of, of holding to the words of God and not turning to it, from, not turning from it to the right or to the left. That's the that's the idea here. There's the straight path, the narrow way, to borrow from Matthew chapter seven in the words of Jesus. And this person, this man of understanding, walks straight ahead. The fool, however, is chasing, as one writer called it, every fleeting pleasure rather than weighing decisions with what is right before God and man. The fool is not concerned with, how is this going to affect me? Is this right? How does this honor or dishonor the Lord? How does this affect others around me? The fool is not interested in those questions. The fool simply asks, do I currently want this? And the fool goes with that. Whatever folly seems to bring them joy. You can see how that overlaps with the idea of the sluggard. As one manifestation of folly. The sluggard is not thinking long term, but only short term, and short term thinking is destructive living for sure. The fool doesn't intend it to be this way, but his intent here is beside the point. The fool's decisions will nevertheless be a self destructive path. Here you have this contrast in verse 22 with what would help produce a man of understanding. And something that the fool would reject. Look in verse 22 with this contrast of counsel and advice. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Verse 22 is talking about someone who wants to live their life welcoming wise counsel. How do you produce a man of understanding? Well, a person of understanding, men and women of understanding and wisdom are not produced because they in themselves possess all the natural resources and how to about how to live this way. It's because they are helped in the grace and providence of God with wisdom from others as well. Without counsel, plans fail. So here's somebody who wants to live their life. It sounds like a good idea to them. Here they go forward ahead. They've not checked with anybody's ideas. Anybody who might look at blind spots. No questions like, well, is this a a good time? What do you think the consequences could be? Do you think this is the right way to go about this? It's without counsel. And so it's no surprise that what the fool would think would be the case absolutely collapses. That their plans don't come to fruition. Because all of our view of life is such a thin slice, right? All the view of life in which we can see and perceive and process and understand is such a small slice. And the more counsel and wise incorporation of voices we welcome, the more sight and insight into situations we gain. In other words, humility recognizes We do not see everything yet as we should. Pride says, I don't want anybody weighing in about anything. I just want to go and do what I want. So without counsel, and here it would mean, of course, wise counsel, biblical guidance and exhortation. Without that, it's no surprise that plans and pursuits collapse. But with many advisors, they, these plans, succeed. Succeed. This is not meant to be some bedrock promise, but rather a general principle in anticipating something that the best way forward in thinking about life is to be open humbly to the input of others. When people make plans quickly and haphazardly, they risk their plans collapsing. Rejecting wisdom from others is a position of pride and demonstrates personal folly. People have all sorts of big decisions they will have to make at different points. And even small ones that might be, you know, uh, we might be wise to welcome counselors in. But the idea of counsel and advisors here must be understood in light of the Book of Proverbs. Advisors here would be those who ought to be advising, giving counsel. Here ought to is those who ought to be giving counsel. In other words, it's not saying. Of course, well, you know, uh, this random group of people or I just asked some of my friends, you know, what did you think about this or what do you think about that? And they weighed in and here's what I'm going to do. That would say nothing about whether they fear the Lord, whether these are people who have hearts and minds shaped by the word of God to provide exhortation. So the counsel and advisors here should be understood contextually in the book of Proverbs as those who would be wise to listen to. We recognize that in Proverbs chapter 1, and not only that chapter, but many others. The young man that the father is writing to, he's warned about listening to counsel that he shouldn't hear. There are those who come to him in Proverbs 1, and they say, here are these others coming down the road, and we can take their their, uh, their money back, and we can split it among ourselves. And listening to that kind of counsel and guidance would be foolish. So it's not just the bare-bones idea of, well, who can I turn to for some input? It's wise counsel that's the idea. The multiplicity of advisors is to recognize that even one person's input might not even give me the fullest picture that multiple conversations could achieve. A man of understanding in verse 21 is going to be someone who walks straight ahead because he is open and humbly receiving of counsel from others. Part of the reason the fool lacks sense and folly is a joy to him is because he will not listen to the people he should be listening to. You can rest assured that the heartbreak that in pastoral ministry you see over and over again in the lives of parents includes the agonizing experience of parents pleading with their children to go this way and not that way and the experience of those children defying them wholeheartedly. Here you have in chapter 15 then that there's nothing new under the sun. Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. In fact, sometimes the counsel and the word, the guidance that comes is the right word at the right time. And it's a wonderful thing. Look in verse 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season how good it is. Well, there's no contrast here. Did you notice that in verse 23, there's not a, a but here where we're Looking at this and contrasting it with that, this is all one idea about receiving an exhortation or statement of truth. And there are two ideas about this uh, statement. First of all, it's apt. Apt, this three letter word in our translations, means it's the right word, it's accurate. It's not unfitting, it's fitting. But it's not just a correct answer. It's a word in season, which means it's timely. It's both the right word at the right time. And that's a beautiful thing when that happens, isn't it? It's not the right word that comes too late and you're like, oh, my goodness, that's the right word a week ago it would have been great, you know, or something like that. Or, or someone has the right word, but it's, but it's at the wrong circumstance or place. You might think of some conversation that somebody wants to have, and a, a right and good conversation, and you think, well, you know, I know we're at a memorial service for this person's loved one, but this is really on my mind, and I'm going to talk about it with this person. You know, that might be the right word out of season. Okay, so we're talking about how circumstances and timing matter, and not just the truthfulness of the word. One commentator says, to say the right thing at the right time is satisfying. That's what it means, that it's a joy to a man. You're giving an apt answer, it's received joyfully. Again, by the man who's seeking understanding. By the man who's humbly welcoming input. And it's not just the right word, but it's at the right time. And how good such a word is. The Lord can use us to bring such joyful words to the lives of others. That on the path in which we walk as pilgrims heading to this land of new creation, we can be those who bring joy by speaking not only what is true, but also what is timely because we care for others. Now the fool will not welcome it, but by the grace and mercy of the Lord and by the help of the Spirit of God that strengthens the hearts of God's people, Truth given at the right time and in the right manner can be welcomed in and be a joyful, satisfying thing. You might have had this experience where you were just so perplexed about something in life, maybe at your wits end about a matter. And you thought, well, I've got to talk with somebody. And so you do. And by the end of that conversation, you just feel very different than you did beforehand. Just the things that helped you to process, ways of looking at a situation, angles you hadn't considered. And you think, my goodness, I'm so glad I had that conversation. I'm so glad I opened up about that and shared about this because the word that was shared and the time in which it was shared, it was exactly what I needed. We know that experience and the Lord is so gracious, isn't he, to provide those by his providence? We close tonight in verse 24 with a contrast, not a contrast, but with a well, a contrast with path of life and shield, but still speaking of the one who is prudent So the emphasis is on one kind of person, the prudent person in verse 24. The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. So we can imply there that the opposite of the prudent, the one who is reckless and careless, the one who gives no thought to his steps, that person can be expecting a path of difficulty and ultimately destruction for folly. The person in view here, the prudent one, the word prudent means someone who gives thought to their steps. They're reasonably cautious. This is not the person who lives in absolute fear of every step. This is a person who is not careless. They recognize that if they move too quickly with things or too thoughtlessly about things, they can really, they can really make a ruin of a situation. They don't want to do that. They're not afraid of moving forward, but they want to be thoughtful about the steps that they're taking. They're not driven by the prevailing winds of their emotions or their circumstances. They want to be prudent. So the prudent person here, the path of life leads upward for the prudent. That he may turn away from Sheol beneath. So the contrast in this verse is a directional one, isn't it? A directional. It's the idea of going up versus going down. Now these spatial, these directional things are meant to depict the various paths that lead to a destination that's either desirable or not. If the path of life is leading upward, then we could see obviously in the verse here, the first part of the, uh, in line one, in the first part of the verse, that that's desirable. Because it speaks of fruitfulness and the blessing of God and the favor of God that would seem to be part of that desirable path for the one that fears the Lord, the prudent one. But turning away from Sheol beneath, the reason that's desirable is because turning away from Sheol would be turning away from the place and the realm of the dead. And the place of judgment even. Sometimes in the Old Testament, Sheol not only means the place of the grave, but what is beyond. What the righteous would avoid on the path of life. Because we don't face the judgment of God. But rather in Christ Jesus, we are not condemned. So this downward path is picturing the direction that ends in destruction. The path of life leads upward for the prudent. So in teaching by contrast, one of the values we talked about is that the value of contrast involves thinking about where paths lead. And here, the path of life leads away from Sheol. Well, that sounds like the path to take. And that means the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom so that the life of the prudent person on this path is one who wants to turn from sin and turn to the Lord. Now for the man of understanding, he's contrasted in verse 21 with that one who has joy in folly. The one who lacks sense. The prudent person is not one who lacks sense. The one who lacks sense is driven by impulse and desire in a holistic way. They are driven by this. Why would the person want to turn from what seems to bring them joy? In the totality of God's Word, here's what we find. That sin is bait with a hook in it. And that while folly holds out the promise of joy, just like the tempter said to the woman, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be, and so you're not going to surely die. And so there's a minimizing of consequence, a twisting of promise, and a, 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 a discarding of things about God's character as if He's holding out on His image bearers and holding forth sin as the thing to bring joy. The reason we would want to turn from wickedness isn't because we're turning from joy. We're leaving the mirage of it. What did not actually satisfy our hearts all along. And we're turning to God in repentance because God is the source of all life and joy. How could it be anything other than that? All good and perfect gifts, James tells us, descend from the Father of lights. And He is without change of shadow. We recognize that in the totality of God's Word, the goodness of God and the life of God and the joy that is the life of God Himself is a gift to His creatures as we come to Him. We need not fear that turning from sin and turning to God, we're abandoning what looked like joy for something less. We're abandoning what is false and turning to what the real thing is. What we were made for. In verse 24, the path of the, of the upright or the prudent, rather, leads upward for these reasons. Here is the son of David then, Solomon, guiding his people. One of the ways I've tried to read Proverbs with you on these uh, Sunday mornings and evenings when we've been in this book over the years is to show us how Solomon is the son of David And Solomon writing to the readers is like the son of David shepherding all those who read this book. So in the truest sense, isn't it the case that the Lord Jesus shepherds us by his words? And we can see that the book of Proverbs plays this role. One of the ways Jesus shepherds his people as the son of David is through these directives. By guiding our hearts. Why should we think of ourselves as shepherded in this way? Because think of the work that shepherds have to do with sheep. They have to warn sheep by their very prodding and poking with their staff and guiding them up front and with all sorts of herding animals that they can help it in order to keep the sheep from destruction. And the words and wisdom of God are this way. The words and wisdom of God exhort us toward life and away from folly. And that's because the Lord loves us. This passage tonight is occupied with a view toward work, and a view toward parents, and a view toward folly, and a view toward wise counsel. These are at least four subjects addressed by one particular unit. And that gets very much up into the business of life about our view of things as the sheep guided by the shepherd. According to Proverbs 15, in light of the totality of God's word, here's the son of David, the faithful shepherd, guiding us as his sheep. And it's not because he doesn't love us, it's because he does. And it's not because in ourselves, we had it all figured out, and we didn't really need this, and this is just all, you know, uh, form and formality. No, Our very lives are dependent on the voice of the shepherd guiding us away from destruction, shield beneath and on a path of life that leads upward. When we think of it, friends this way, we should receive the proverbs in this book as the love and wisdom of God toward us that guides our hearts into life everlasting because it's the way and character of Christ most of all. Let's pray.